Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hi, and welcome back to Holly History. Nick here. This is going to be our second short episode, and this episode will cover westward expansion, uh, kind of picking up where we left off with reconstruction. We just had one of our more recent episodes out, episode eight, in which our new employee, uh, Mr. Ritz, uh, Ritzy as he likes to be called, joined us. Uh, Zach did a great job, and he even helped with our new intro, which you also just heard. That should be on every episode. We, You know, with the intros, we wanted to do something a little different, and I don't know restructure a little bit from our previous intro you probably noticed a lot of our more recent shows didn't have the intro included but you know we want to do something different a little more special and uh, I think we got that so now with the backgrounds and the new intro we kind of have a a new year and a new uh, new sound so entering 2020 hopefully we'll be even getting some more new stuff so westward expansion as our march of history shorts uh, moves on I'm sorry this has taken a long time but been a crazy school year so far, and we're hoping to get these out on a more regular basis. So after the Civil War and during some of it, this the westward expansion period really does overlap with um, Reconstruction. If I had to put a, a date on it, you could argue the westward expansion is even beginning in the 1840s, 50s. Um, but the date we're going to put on this kind of is 1862, and I'll tell you a little bit about that more in a second. So after the Civil War, there's a desire to unite east and west, as well as north and south, especially after the war. Most Americans at this point in our history live either east of the Mississippi River or west of the Rockies. A lot of Americans are west of the Rockies because of the gold rush in 1849 and the 1850s, and those people have stayed out there. And the Great Plains is really the region in the middle of the country that is unpopulated, and many of many people in the nation see this as an area to be populated, to use its resources in whatever way they see fit, and they see it as a place of expansion. The United States, since its founding, if you even look at the Proclamation of 1763 and the Revolutionary War, has been looking to push westward. And there's something in, I guess, the American spirit you could say that is part of that. Now, it's quite open, it looks like. However, it's home to uh, thousands of Native peoples. And they've managed to maintain their way of life there for a fair amount of time. But That's about to come to an end as Americans move more and more westward. In 1862, the Homestead Act is passed. And what this does is offer large chunks of free, or not necessarily free, but very cheap land, little cost to those who will farm it and remain on it. The key is you have to remain on the land. And these are states like Nebraska, the Dakotas, uh, Wyoming, okay? Then the idea is to get people to move there and get people to stay there. Because they know, the government anyways, that Native Americans are there and in order to displace them. And let's be honest, throughout American history, Native peoples, indigenous peoples in the continental United States, as in many other places, are seen as an obstacle that needs to be removed. It's not, you know, a a pleasant thought, but that's how the United States government will often see and treat Native Americans. 
in this country. They're an obstacle to be removed of, to progress. Um, again, not exactly something to be proud of and talk about, but it is true. And they're hoping, the government's hoping to populate these Great Plains region. And it's an opportunity to impoverish peoples and cities. Uh, newly freed African Americans will move west for land. You know, if, you, if you're stuck in the mud, so to speak, economically, land is often equated with wealth and power. So 160 acres out west sounds pretty good. And homesteading, though, is tough. Um, you're living beside Native Americans, and ex- you're invading their homes, so that creates problems, obviously. And there's also, the Plains is a hostile climate and environment at times. I mean, Tornado Alley is no joke. Um, you, ha- you can have very, very brutal winters. You can have very hot and scorching summer, times of drought. So it's worth noting, too, that um, kind of a side shoot to this, but really significant down the road, especially women's suffrage, is that women will have much a much bigger role in the West. They have much more freedom. They'll have higher rates of land ownership. Western states will give women the right to vote sooner than the East will. Wyoming is the first territory to do so. And so they avoid a lot of those traditional female roles that have been in the East. So women will gain much more rights in the West. And what helps this population boom that will happen out West our railroads. Uh, the Transcontinental Railroad is very significant. You need to know that for the Regis exam and kind of one of the big things out of this unit is that the Transcontinental Railroad expands commerce and trade between the states. It moves people out west safer and quicker. It cuts the travel time down immensely to move out west. So this new railroad, which will uh, be completed in 1869, will really change the way people move. And it really was a, a kind of symbolic thing of post-Civil War, joining East and West um, after North and South have been so divided. The two companies will be Union Pacific and Central Pacific who will begin the project. UP uh, will lay track west from Omaha, Nebraska, and CP, Central Pacific, will lay trees, trees, <laughs> will lay track east from Sacramento, California. CP, Central Pacific, has a very tough time cutting through those mountainous terrains, and they'll mostly be using... Um, Chinese immigrants to do the work. They'll be paid very little. They will be treated horribly. Um, but these are a group of immigrants who built that railroad and deserve the credit. And unfortunately, in 1882, they'll actually be banned from Chinese Immigration Act, Exclusion Act. We'll talk about that next unit more, but we'll ban Chinese immigration. So unfortunately, not a very nice thank you from the United States government there. And the railroad uh, from the east, the UP, is mostly using... Civil War veterans, uh, plenty of them, Irish and African-Americans, to build that railroad. And there's a lot of conflict there between African-Americans and Irish competing for jobs back east. That's kind of a a rivalry among classes of Americans in this time period. So there'll be some violence there among the workers at times. The venture was very, the construction was very corrupt. The companies received about almost 13,000 acres of land on either side of the track laid and 48,000 per mile of the track laid. Now, the more difficult terrain you had, the better you got paid. So the CP, the Central Pacific, is trying to get through, you know, a mountainous region. And uh, as a result, they they will be paid a higher amount of track rate earlier on. And UP is, at first is just going through, you know, open plains in Nebraska and Wyoming and is just, you know, straight on through. There'll be conflict with Native Americans at times. Um, some of the more prominent Native Americans in the region. We're going to be talking about some of the more prominent nations are the Cheyenne. Um, you also have the Lakota Sioux. We, the Anglicized, we will call them Sioux. Um, or the Dakota are kind of offshoot of that too. 
in the Southwest, we'll talk about the Apache, the Comanche. There's plenty of other more nations that you could go on and on. Eventually, the railroad will meet in Promontory Point, Utah, and drive in the Golden Spike. It's later a move for the more traditional uh, iron or steel spike to actually hold the railroad together. And this really escalated conflict with Native Americans. Native Americans saw this railroad as the beginning of something different. Now, there had been violence before in the West, which I'll kind of backtrack to the Native American story more after in a little bit here, but it definitely escalates and puts more pressure on Native Americans. And westward expansion as a whole comes to the expense of Native peoples. As, you know, United States history, we look at the Proclamation of 1763, you look at um, settlers pushing westward, you look at even the initial settling of the continental United States, lots of pressure on Native peoples right away, whether it's disease, warfare. it's, It's a very, very great challenge to overcome for uh, Native peoples in the United States. You'll see the same story several times when it comes to Native and U.S. relations here. Usually white settlers will pour onto Native American lands, there'll be some kind of violence, a treaty will be signed, and it'll lay out boundaries, and you'll see the U.S. government then, or settlers, violate the, the treaty that they've signed. The Native peoples will make it very clear, look, we had a deal, and the U.S. government will say, well, now we need to have a new deal. And that will happen several times over. If you look at the Treaty of Fort Laramie in Wyoming, that laid out boundaries um, and the white side was consistently violated it, which led to a lot of violence. Uh, one particular instance, a band of Cheyenne and Arapaho were massacred at a place called Sand Creek. They were encouraged to remain there by nearby army commanders as a you know, sign of their, their, their peace and as a good showing of their faith. Um, they were an entirely peaceful group who wanted no violence and were led by a leader named Black Kettle. And a group of Colorado militia acting on their own accord, um, we think, and most sources show this, are massacred. They're mostly women and children. And not everybody was behind Black Kettle. There were other members of other um, other members of the Cheyenne Arapaho groups that were still continuing raids. But the militia took it out on this group who was entirely peaceful and massacred we think at upwards of 100 and some odd Native American uh, women and children, not exactly a great moment in the history of our nation. At first, the, the raid was praised um, and eventually condemned the leader of the militia to rising political career. People eventually saw it for what it was. Um, another one we have, it, we kind of get to the whole sitting bull crazy horse up in the northern uh, territories of the Dakotas where people move north to the Black Hills of South Dakota because they, they think gold is there. And this is where we're going to get to Custer's last stand eventually. And it's a violation of a treaty, the deal that was signed, that this land would be kept uh, aside for the Lakota, the Lakota Sioux, I'll keep using that to refer to make it easy, and the Cheyenne, and led by Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And they've put their foot down. They've had enough. And they destroy a contingent of U.S. Cavalry soldiers at the Battle of Little Bighorn under George Armstrong Custer. Instead of going into all the details of the battle, what you need to know is Little Bighorn freaked out Americans. It was the last major victory that Native Americans had over U.S. forces, and it was significant because it was such a humongous defeat and so shocking. Um, Custer is killed as well as just about everybody he's with. Unfortunately for Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and the Cheyenne and the Lakota Sioux and other nations in that region, the U.S. government was determined to finish this job. Um, Both eventually would end up surrendering, but Sitting Bull flees to Canada. Crazy Horse will eventually end up turning himself in and uh, surrendering to U.S. soldiers. They both, on their respective reservations, eventually Sitting Bull will will move um, to reservation later, will be killed in ways that are both controversial, multiple different accounts. 
Uh, we'll get into Sitting Bull a bit more later. But, you know, the question quickly becomes, after Little Bighorn, into the 1880s and 90s, um, and there's many other figures in the story, Chief Joseph, to name one, uh, Geronimo, some others. But to keep it kind of focused on the big picture and idea and to make sure this is well understood and probably the most important message here is the question quickly becomes, how do you deal with the Native American problem, in quotations, problem if you are the United States government? There's a million different ideas that are kind of swirling around. It's, it's not uncommon to see this idea of, you know, leave them on the reservations, put them there. Um, but many see that as not a successful way that, you know, consistently people who are dealing with Indian policy will see white settlers move on to reservations and more violence will, will, will come out. But this consistent theme of this obstacle to be removed keeps popping up. Um, and so that, that idea of just keeping them on the reservation is sort of kind of brushed to the side in favor of a more, for its time, sort of progressive one. Um, there was a big movement among folks in the immigration community who were looking at how to help Americans adjust to American society. I'm sorry, new Americans adjust to American society that you could assimilate them. And uh, it, so there was this idea that you could make Native Americans into um, civilized versions of themselves. The phrase became, kill the Indian to save the man. This is one of the more popular topics that you hear discussed in the classroom. It will pop up at the Regents exam. And a great example is Richard Henry Pratt's Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. And it's interesting because Richard Henry Pratt actually kind of ends up in Rochester at the end of his life um, here locally. But his Carlisle Indian School, he was adamant that the children must be removed from their, their reservations and individualized, not colonized. He wanted to get them out of their homes because in his mind, you know, you have to immerse them in the in the waters of civilization, he said in one speech, and hold them there until they're thoroughly soaked. And the idea is to to take these children and to, you know, the idea of nature versus nurture. He wants to, quote-unquote, nurture them into civilized society in the late 19th century. A lot of social Darwinism going on here. We'll get to that in imperialism, the idea that certain races are, you know, superior to others. We know this to be completely false today. But Pratt didn't necessarily kind of see it that way. He really believed that if you educated a Native American child, etc., that they could grow into possessing civilized habits in his mind. Um, and the school forced children to rid themselves of anything Native American, anything from their, their home nation, uh, personal belongings, language, even the language. And this could result in things in beatings, military drill, um, the Christian religion. But there's something that Pratt notices pretty quickly, um, and other Indian schools like it, that when these students graduate, and I'm not sure Pratt noticed this, but it's what the sources will, will show us if you read them, that the kids who leave these schools, uh, white society is not ready to accept them yet. And they lose sort of the sense of identity because they feel neither, um, I read one diary, I feel neither Indian nor white was the expression that the, the young person used. I mean, Pratt himself eventually begins pulling young people from um, reservations and areas from the East who are already Christian, who already speak English, who already possess many of the quote-unquote civilized habits, and he'll kind of trot them out and say, you know, see, look what look what my schools do, look what Carlisle does, and try to model it. Fortunately, the Indian boarding school in his model by the 1940s, 50s, is really beginning to phase out in favor for um, schools on reservations. I mean, Jim Thorpe himself, very famous, probably the greatest athlete of all time, was a student at Carlisle. So by the 1930s, it kind of falls out, 1930s, 40s, 50s, 
big broad time period there kind of falls out of uh, favor in favor for more of the reservation school. The last on paper violent conflict was the massacre at Wounded Knee. Uh, this is the Pine Ridge Reservation, and Sitting Bull actually, after returning from Canada, is there. And he was staying there in 1890, and it became a place of unrest after the ghost dance spreads around the West. Now, if you want to get truly into what the ghost dance was, what it meant to Native Americans, you could do this for two hours. But as far as what you need to know, um, if performed, it was believed the ghost dance would bring back the buffalo, which was, for many Plains Native Americans, this was their their sustenance, their, their main form of, of living, and it had been hunted to pretty much near extinction. And that the idea of that was it would rid natives of their food, Native Americans of their food source. And the, um, if the ghost dances performed this religious ceremony, that the the white man would be driven away, and the idea that uh, bullets could not harm them if they performed this dance. Uh, and Sitting Bull, as sort of this mo- these moments of tension and unrest are going on, is killed not long before the incident wounded knee will happen. And it's pretty controversial uh, how he was killed and, and the, the way in which it happened. It was the middle of the night, lots of different accounts, but nevertheless, Sitting Bull is killed, which really ignites, ignites by the wrong word, but upsets those in the reservation. This is an important figure um, taken from them in a pretty controversial way. So the reservation becomes very uneasy. And on December 29th, um, Lakota under Bigfoot are surrounded by 7th Cavalry soldiers. Yes, the 7th Cavalry. These are the same guys that were a little bighorn. Um, you know, oh, oh, a little over a decade earlier, and they actually surround the ghost dancers and demand that they turn in the weapons uh, that they might have, okay? And a fight between a soldier and Native American kind of kicks off. Um, there's accounts saying that the, the individual's death, didn't understand what's going on, and somebody fires a shot, and the U.S. Army opens fire with Hotchkiss guns and all sorts of things. And the U.S. Army will claim, you know, oh, somebody fired a shot. And, you know, that's, that's why we, we, we open fire. Now, the interesting thing here is why would a band of people turn in their weapons and then start firing? Um, it's a little, little interesting, the excuses used here, but the amount of people killed to this day is unknown. It was a massacre. For a time, it was called the Battle at Wounded Knee. This is not a battle. This was a massacre of men, women, and children. Um, and it's just one example of the many massacres that have happened. One of the most important historical works, in my opinion, that I've read on Native American history was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It was one of the first works to really kick off the way we look at Native American history in a different direction. I read it for one of my college courses in my master's program. My professor said this, is, this work, you know, while not complete, while not all-encompassing, was a different way to look at history and kind of flip the narrative on how we look at Native American history. So, many others thought that possibly the 7th Cavalry could be looking for payback after Little Bighorn, and that was also part of their narrative at Wounded Knee. The frontier is closed by the Census Bureau a few years after the massacre at Wounded Knee, which many people see as the end of the story, but it's really not. As far as I bring it today, tribal control of lands for Native people in America is an ongoing struggle each and every day. I had a professor in college who always talks about, you know, we live on confiscated land of Native Americans, indigenous peoples in this country, and that's something we need to remember. And the fact that it's often glossed over, I mean, even now I feel guilty the way that I'm summarizing this unit because there's so many things I would like to talk about in my classroom and do, but I'm trying to do the best job I can to help you review for the regents and to get you prepared and review for midterms or finals or whatever. 
the things you need to know, but this is a topic that deserves studying. Tribal control of lands, among other many issues in Native American communities, are huge today, and they unfortunately do not receive the attention that they probably deserve. But thank you for listening to Holly History. I'm happy to get this short out. Uh, check out some of our other episodes. They're, they're really great. Uh, our most recent episode, episode 8, just came out the other day. We discussed some new stuff, and hopefully we get you some new stuff in January, too. This is Holly History. Thank you for listening.